Thank you so much, Nancy. All of a sudden this week, out of nowhere, I began to become interested in what it would take to climb Mount Everest. Prior to moving here to Phoenix, mountain climbing was not anything I ever put much thought into. But since moving here, my wife has taken me on numerous hiking trips. I hope you heard the way I worded that. Uh, We've hiked here in the valley, central Arizona, northern Arizona, Colorado, Utah. I sometimes fear what her next idea may be. But as you know, Mount Everest is a whole different type of hiking. It's Earth's tallest mountains, 29,000 feet in the air. Risking your life is what you're doing to climb this massive mountain. I read an interesting article on the BBC this week which states that there are over 200 dead bodies in the frozen tundra on the journey up Mount Everest. What surprised me the most about the few articles I read is how long it takes to climb Mount Everest. On average, it takes nearly two months. Two months. Now, if you have an Olympic body, if you're in that kind of shape, if you have a great guide and the weather works out perfectly for you, you might can do it in six weeks. But the average person takes nearly two months to climb that great mountain. You may be wondering why I looked into all of that. It has nothing to do with future travel plans. Christy, don't get any ideas. Uh, the reason I looked into what it would take to climb Mount Everest is because that's what I feel like I have to do this morning with the text you just heard Nancy read to us. This is massive. It is just absolutely massive. There is so much in the great text she just read to us. We do not have the luxury of taking two months to climb that great mountain you just heard read to you. We don't have that luxury. I wish we did, but we don't. So instead, we're going to climb Mount Everest today on a helicopter. That's, by the way, the way I would want to do it anyway. We're going to take a journey through this text, and we're just going to, we're going to hover around a few sections of it, We'll pay attention to a few things, but there's no way we're going to be able to see everything that we should see. So my seminary colleagues who are trained to nitpick, who are trained to scrutinize these types of things, please put down your red pen. In fact, I'll give you the permission to take a nap if you can't come today with a critical spirit. So just get away from all of that, dear brothers. Uh, We have to see what we can see. Here's what I want to do, though. I want to encourage you this morning. Take what you can receive from this text and go home and read this text again this week. And then read chapter 13, as you're going to hear next week, because that's another massive text. And you have to understand the temple controversies of this text to understand next week's uh, text in chapter 13. So let's pray together, let's ask for God's help, and then let's jump right in. Oh great God, we plead with you this day for you to help your people. We are needy, we are hungry, we are helpless, we are hopeless without you. So come today, speak to us through your word, feed us, sustain us, instruct us, rebuke us, encourage us, help us. For your glory, for the good of your people, we pray with the Spirit's help and we pray in the only name that matters, the name of your Son, King Jesus. We pray these things. And all God's people said, Amen. We have to understand, if you weren't here last week, sort of the backdrop to everything that we just heard read to us, beginning in Mark 11, verses 27 until the end. This unit, eleven twenty-seven through the end of chapter 12, records for us a series of controversies that Jesus encountered when the same group of people, his accusers, his skeptics, approach him with more controversial statements, more controversial questions. They want to critique everything about him, what he says, what he does, where he goes, the people he talks to, his theological convictions, as we'll see in just a moment. 
Mark, in case you start falling asleep on this, Mark keeps these controversies before us at all times. If you'll recall many months ago when we were in Mark chapters 1, 2, and 3, we saw that Jesus had controversial settings in Galilee. Now we find him in Jerusalem, and the controversies are increasing over and over and over again. Historians like to use this phrase when talking about what precipitated everything leading into World War II. You'll hear him make this statement, the drumbeats of war increased over a period of time. And that's exactly what's happening in our text today. The drumbeats are getting louder and louder and louder. His opposition is getting more antagonistic, more violent even, more scrutinizing of everything he's doing. The hostility is reaching, if you will, a fever pitch. Things are moving. His inevitable death is a few days away. As we've seen over the last few weeks, particularly last week, Jesus enters the temple. He cleanses the temple. He goes into their turf, challenges their understandings of things, challenges their practices of things, and he sets it right. But he doesn't leave. He stays, and he begins to have these confrontations that we read. So here's the best way I think we can hover over this text today. Let's ask a simple question. What can we learn about Jesus in this text? Simple question. Or another way to ask it would be simply this. What does Jesus reveal about himself in these encounters with his agitators? So if you're a note taker, write that down. What does Jesus reveal about himself in the end of Mark 11 and all of Mark 12? That's the question we want to answer. By the way, there are more answers than we can get to today. I hope to give you six. First, let's note that Jesus demonstrates God-given authority. Jesus demonstrates God-given authority. What does Jesus reveal about himself in this text? He has authority when the so-called authorities challenge him on it. It was Tuesday. He's been around for a few days. Mark tells us in verse 27, he is walking into the temple. When you go to Luke's gospel and look, look what he says there, Luke tells us he was teaching the people and preaching the gospel. Luke chapter 20, verse 1. At some point, the religious group emerges and begins to confront him. Mark is very precise as to who these people are. Notice what he says about them. They're the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. All three of these groups of people make up a bigger group, the Sanhedrin. There's much that can be said about all that these people um, model, everything they believe in, why they are there, why they don't like Jesus. We've already said a lot of that leading up to today, but if you're not following along with everything Pastor Josh has been saying, know this about this group. They are, in a sense, I'm being overly simplistic here, a mediating group. They're trying to sort of bridge a gap between Rome and the people of Israel, and they perceived that Jesus was a threat to their authority. He was a threat by his character. They couldn't pin him down on a wrongdoing. He was a threat because of his deeds. How do you explain these things? He was a threat because, as we've already seen, he taught with authority, unlike them. All of these things are sort of mushrooming up, and now they are going to challenge his authority. If you didn't notice, in verses 27 through 33, that word authority appears four times. It's just sort of leaping off the page. But don't think for a moment that's the first time Mark has talked about this. It's been a few months, but do you remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, it says they were astonished at his teaching for what? He taught them with authority and not as the scribes. At the very end of Mark chapter 1, they were all amazed. They questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. They don't know what to do with this. In Mark chapter 2, but that you may know that the Son of Man, listen, has authority. I tell you, 
Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Authority is nothing new at the end of Mark 11. It's been hovering in each chapter. There's something unique about Jesus. There's something something different in this man. He's astonishing them. So those who have authority don't like this new threat of authority. And so here's their new way of trying to trick Jesus, discredit Jesus. They bring up John the Baptist. You don't ask a master theologian a theological question and try to trap him. But that's exactly what they do. They bring up John the Baptist and ask, or pardon me, Jesus rather brings up John the Baptist to pin them down with regard to this. Let's be clear here. Their questioning of Jesus is not like perhaps some of your questions that you have. It's highly likely that today we have what we might call in our crowd today an interested skeptic. You know you're not a Christian, but you came here today. You're interested in the claims of Jesus. You're interested in what the Bible says about him. You have big questions you want answers to. How can God be good and evil exist? Those questions aren't new. You should be encouraged that people have been asking those questions for a long, long time. We love interested skeptics. We love people who have questions because at Trinity, we believe we can help you provide answers to those questions. That's not what these guys are, though. These aren't the folks who are interested in Jesus and they really want to find out more. They really want to know more. These are people who want to kill him. So what does he do? John the Baptist is brought up, and Jesus basically asks them this question. Or they ask essentially, hey, Jesus, what are your credentials? Do you have sort of a transcript of your PhD? Who gave you the authority to come here and talk this way, teach this way, do these things? Jesus is in a sense in a bind, right? If he says, well, I don't have my transcripts, I don't have an official sanction to do this teaching, he might lose favor with the people because he's not authorized to do that. If he says that he has authority from God, he'll be accused of blasphemy. So what does Jesus do to assert his authority? What does he do? He brings up John the Baptist. Here is essentially his question, or really his statement. How can you, who can't even look at the works of John the Baptist, which are so obvious, And come to the conclusion that he is a man sent from God. How do you think you're going to look at my life and evaluate me and come to the conclusion that I am who I say I am? If you can't get John the Baptist right, how do you think you're going to get me right? They don't know what to do with this response. By the way, I think it is interesting that in Mark's gospel, he begins by citing Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 linking John the Baptist and Jesus, and now we have Jesus linking himself to John the Baptist here, and they don't know what to do with it. Jesus is a man of authority. Jesus has the authority to do these things. Why, church? Why can Jesus do the things that he's doing? How is it that he can offer the kingdom to sinful outcasts? How is it that Jesus can give definitive interpretations of Scripture? How is it that Jesus can present himself as Israel's king? How is it that he can judge the temple, offer himself as a ransom? How is it that he can do all of these things? Because Mark chapter 9 verse 7 tells us, God saying of Jesus, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And lest you forget, dear Christian, when Jesus defeated the grave, what did he come and pronounce to the world? All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Jesus is authoritative because he is from God. Now, there are a million ways to apply this, but I want to piggyback on something Josh said last week. Because if you've been around the last several weeks here at Trinity during the Sunday school hour, Our elders and different people have been talking about the role of elders in the life of the church. A lot has been said about that, a lot of helpful things. You've had a lot of questions as I listen in to 
What do our elders do and why do they help us this way? And the reason why that is important is because in our culture, the word authority has negative connotations. Oftentimes, authority is viewed as authoritarianism. And that's because we, all of us have seen people abuse authority. We've seen people take their leadership roles and abuse others with it. It's really, really clear today that we can take from this text a helpful application for where we are in the life of our church. Do you remember what uh, Peter says to the people? He tells the elders there in 1 Peter 5 to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, listen carefully, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge. Dear friend, hear me say this. Authority is a gift from God to you. Your elders that serve us here are God's gift to us. They are shepherding us. All of you have, in some sense, ways to be authoritative in your life without being an authoritarian in your home, in your job, in your relationships. God has given you as a believer, as a follower of Christ, some sense of authority in your roles. We have to follow the leadership of Jesus, even here in this text, not to become authoritarians, but selfless, humble followers of Christ who lead, shepherd, even use our authority with others, not for shameful gain, not to domineer, not to, push, not to get pushy, but for the glory of God. We don't want mafia type of people in our lives. We want tender shepherds who have authority given to them from God to lead us, feed us, care for us, get us back on track, all of these things. If you're a member of Trinity this morning, not only thank God for your elders, Dan and all these others, Pastor Josh as he's gone, be grateful for the role they have in your life, the authority of the church in your life. It's a great gift from God to us. A second thing we need to get back on the helicopter very quickly, a second thing we learn in this text about Jesus is that Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. I wish I had time to unpack so much of what I gleaned this week, just searching some of the scholars who have done the the in-depth work on Mark chapter 12. But what we can say is that Mark 12, that first parable, is directly linked to the end of chapter 11. We don't need to bifurcate these two things. They go together. Jesus is pointing this parable right at the very people who are questioning his authority. How do we know that? We know that because even they knew that. Notice what it says in chapter 12, verse 11. Jesus says, uh, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So what is this parable That Jesus tells them. It's of a man who builds a vineyard and he leaves it to tenants. He then departs and goes to another country. At some point, the owner sends a servant and the servant comes to receive the rental fees, but the servant is sent, or pardon me, is beaten and sent back without any payment. The owner sends another servant, and this time he's hit on the head, we're told, and treated shamefully. He too is sent back. The owner sends a third servant, but this time the tenants kill the servant. Verse 5 says, the owner kept sending servants and tenants and they kept killing them. Finally, the owner sends his beloved son, the heir, assuming the tenants will respect the son. But the tenants realize that it is the son. And what do they do? They kill him, they throw his body outside of the vineyard. Don't miss the master storyteller. What does Jesus follow this parable with? A paralyzing question. 
Did you see the question? Look in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He doesn't even let them answer. Notice how he answers it for them. He will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Dear friends, Mark 12 is a judgment chapter. It is a contrast between Jesus judging those who reject him. The man obviously planting this vineyard is God. The vineyard, Isaiah 5, is clearly Israel. The tenants are clearly the leaders of Israel who are rejecting the servants, the faithful prophets that God has sent to the vineyard, to Israel, over and over and over again. And of course, the beloved son is the beloved Jesus. Hebrews 1 reminds us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us, to the fathers, by the prophets. And we can go back and just glance in the Old Testament and see how they were treated. Jeremiah, beaten, thrown into the stocks, Come to the New Testament. John the Baptist, beheaded. What is Jesus' point? Even Hebrews 11 goes into the detail of those of whom the world was not worthy. Those who were flogged and put in chains and imprisoned. They were suffered. They suffered and they mocked. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. What is Jesus doing with this parable? What is he doing there in verse 10? Malachi actually alluded to this earlier when he spoke to us. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, and he changes the metaphor from a vineyard, doesn't he, to a building. Interestingly, by the way, he's going to quote this same psalm when he's on trial. It's clearly messianic. He knows who he is. He knows why he has come. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter and Paul, Paul in Ephesians 2, Peter in 1 Peter 2, verse 6, let us know that Jesus is the foundation of the church, the cornerstone on which the whole building rests. The parable and Jesus' subsequent commentary make this clear. He is the cornerstone, and they're tripping over the stone. They're not embracing what God has designed. Do you remember Paul's argument in Romans 11? Paul says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? Paul is clearly burdened here. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a tribe of Benjamin. He, goes, he says, God has not rejected his people for whom he foreknew. And he talks about Elijah. Do you remember Elijah's complaint? Paul quotes him, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. And Paul notes how uh, God told Elijah that there was a remnant chosen by grace. But then Paul makes this statement. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. God has been very patient, Jesus is telling his accusers. God has been very patient. He has sent people to you. He has sent his servants to you. You're killing them and you have killed them. You're going to kill me. They know where this parable is landing on them. But they will be unsuccessful. He is the cornerstone. God is kind, dear friends, and he is patient But we must not presume his grace in our lives. What they should have done at the very moment Jesus brings us up is repented. Just as we must do even today. We cannot presume on God's grace. He has been kind. He has been patient with us. But notice the severity of God. He destroys all of them. And he gives the vineyard to someone else. Now, I I can think of so many things to, to encourage you with, dear church, when we see the abruptness of this parable. Just one takeaway for you, dear brother and sister. Do you see God's plan? 
Jesus was not plan B. All along, God's plan could not be thwarted by the intentions of man. Even though they wanted to stifle, destroy, discredit everything God sent them, whether it was through a prophet or now through his son, they cannot stifle fully, eradicate fully God's plan to redeem his purchased people. I find great encouragement from that today because as Dan prayed a moment ago, there's so much today going on today that almost cripples us when we look at our world. And yet God's plan for his people goes on. The purchased people of God are being gathered together because God's future for them is certain. We need now to move on into the next little section of this text and see, number three, that Jesus confirms God's sovereignty. I want to tease this out with you for just a moment, how Jesus confirms God's sovereignty in verses 13 through 17. Notice first the flattery that they use with Jesus. We need to be careful with this even in our own lives. I'm from the South, and in the South we call this buttering someone up. And that's exactly what they do with Jesus. Notice what they say to him. They said to him, verse 14, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. You are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Let's remember, dear friends, Proverbs 26, verse 28, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. They are buttering up Jesus to trap him yet again. And how do they trap him? We call this the good old either-or fallacy. You know the old question, have you stopped beating your wife? No matter how you answer it, you're doomed. And that's exactly what they do with Jesus. Notice verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? By the way, that word test is the same word that's used of Satan in Mark 1, 13, and how he tempted our Lord in the wilderness. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And this was correct, by the way. When you looked at the coin, there was on one side a bust of Tiberius, uh, Tiberius Caesar with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. The reverse side of that coin would have been an image of Tiberius's mother with the words Pontifex Maximus, meaning, of course, high priest. So they bring this coin to Jesus, and Jesus uses this to teach them something quite profound. The Jews found this, by the way, to be idolatrous, which added insult to injury, that there was an image of a man claiming to be God on a coin. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Brothers and sisters, that phrase alone could keep us here all afternoon, afternoon, teasing out what is Jesus meaning with render to Caesar what is Caesar's. So then we have to ask the question, well, what does belong to Caesar? What doesn't belong to Caesar? And then this next question, well, what belongs to God? Now, Jesus is not an anarchist. He clearly knows that God has sovereignly, and this is what he's affirming, God has sovereignly ordained institutions, the family, the government, the church. And if we had time today, we could go into talking about Romans 13, 1 to 7, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, and see how God has ordained these institutions. But before we lift off again and move further down into this text, I want to hang on to not so much what belongs to Caesar, but the second part of what Jesus said to this man. Here's how we know that the questioner was disingenuous. Here's how we know that he is a hypocrite. Here's how we know that he did not have good intentions when he asked Jesus this question. Render the things that are Caesar's. Well, it's Caesar. Show me a coin whose image is on it. Okay, well, render to Caesar what's, what belongs to him. Render to God what belongs to God. The questioner should have followed up with a question, shouldn't he? What should the question have been? Well, what things belong to God? And what would Jesus have said? 
Well, whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? That's not at all what this guy is after. May I tell you, dear friend, if you're here today without Christ, you need to know you are not an accident. You are not the result of random circumstances. There's no such thing, this may shock you, as luck. There's no such thing as chance. This may sound harsh. I don't want it to be harsh, but you are not in control of your life. You're not in charge. This world's bigger than you, and God is bigger than you. You belong to your maker. Render yourself to him. All of you to him. You are an image bearer of the one true God. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus is not saying these things are equal. But you belong to God is what he's saying. Give your life to God. It's petty to talk about money and who it belongs to. What about you? He wouldn't go there though. None of these people really want to know what Jesus has to offer them. They just want to shame him. Dear Christian, if you are here today, you need to render your life to him as well. Your ambitions, your money, your future, your hopes, your dreams, your degrees, your family, your children, your singleness, your marriage, it's all his. Render unto God what is God's. Your insecurities, your health, your everything, you render to God what is his? Every part of you belongs to him. Here's what we do so often though, isn't it? We want to compartmentalize God. God, I'll give you this. These things are mine. So therefore, who do I give my coins to? We're missing it. We're missing it. Every compartment shatters in light of a sovereign God who says you are his. You belong to him. The disingenuousness of this questioner is exposed rather quickly. I hope, dear friends, that you'll see they sought to trap him. But he affirmed, we could say so many other things about this little part of this text. But Jesus affirms God's sovereignty over even institutions and his ownership of you and me and every single one of us. You want to know something about we learn about Jesus? Jesus confirms that God is the author of all things and that he owns it all. Number four, we learn that Jesus from this text affirms the resurrection. I hope you heard Nancy read through that long text. We've had different groups come at Jesus, right? We've had the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Jesus handled that one well. We have the Pharisees and the Herodians who come after him. Jesus shuts them down as well. Now we have the Sadducees come, and they come with a trick question. Now, who are these people? They were essentially, all scholars say this about them, they were in a sense the aristocrats. They were the big shots. They had money, they had power, and they had unique theological convictions. They, in a sense, brought themselves into, if you will, almost like a cult, they had their restrictive way of viewing things, and they, everyone else knew it. They were selected in what they re- uh, received from Scripture. They only affirmed the first five books of the Bible. They would not look at anything past that as authoritative, which is interesting that Jesus actually goes to what they consider to be authoritative and deconstructs their poor theology. They rejected all of the Old Testament, again, except the first for first five books, they had very specific doctrinal convictions, but don't miss this one. Here's the one that really matters right now. They did not believe in the resurrection. We know that because it says that. It says in verse 18, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Verses 19 through 23 record their trick question. For the sake of time, let me just simply summarize the the background to their question and what they're trying to trip Jesus up with here. In the book of Ruth, one of the many issues we have in the book of Ruth and throughout parts of the Old Testament is what to do when a woman becomes a widow. What's supposed to happen in that woman's life? 
A husband dies, the Leverite law was the, when the, if a husband dies, if the husband had brothers, the wife would then marry the brother if she's childless. The husband's brother is then under obligation to marry her, raise up a seed in his brother's name. The firstborn of that marriage would be regarded as the offspring of the deceased brother. Well, here's the conundrum that they present to Jesus. In this scenario, a wife loses her husband, becomes a widow. This guy has several brothers, seven. And she marries one. He dies, still no child. And just on down the list, they're creating this absurd scenario. What happens to the woman if the resurrection is true, according to them? This is what they're trying to get Jesus to see. Hey, Jesus, you affirm the resurrection, and if it's true, who will this woman belong to in the resurrection? She had seven husbands. Which one will she belong to? Dear friend, if you want to have a theological debate with someone, the last thing you ever want your opponent to say to you is you don't know the Bible. Jesus is upfront and confrontational in his response. He basically says to them three things. Number one, verse 26, you do not know the scriptures. Number two, you do not know the power of God. At the end of verse 27, you are quite wrong. (laughs) You do not know the scriptures. You do not know the power of God. You are quite wrong. Here's a marvelous way in which Jesus, as it were, pulls the rug out from underneath their feet because there are people who claim to believe, these are people who claim to believe the Torah, yet they don't want to believe in it. And Jesus is saying here, yet there is a sense in which Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are still alive because God is a God of the living. And they are in fellowship with him. And then in verse 25, he says, there is no marriage in heaven. Don't say amen, anybody in here, okay? But there is no marriage in heaven. Notice what he says. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. We need to be very careful here. He doesn't say that we will be angels in heaven. He says that we are going to be like angels in heaven. In the sense that, just like angels... There will be no need to propagate the species in heaven. Here's one way to think about this. When John Penry, some 450 years ago, was martyred for the faith, the day before before his execution in the Tower of London, he wrote a letter to his wife and four daughters. His oldest daughter was four. His youngest daughter was four months. And the daughter's names, by the way, Uh, The oldest was Deliverance, the second daughter was Comfort, the third daughter's name was Safety, and the last daughter's name was Sure Hope. And he wrote them a letter through his wife, and he addressed the letter this way, from her husband for a season and her eternal brother. From her husband for a season and her eternal brother. He left all four of his daughters a Bible. And that's the end of him. He's executed the next day. But even he realized, she's my wife for a season. She's my sister for eternity. Jesus is affirming the resurrection and the reality of heaven. While there will be some similarities between what we know now, the people of God will gather, we will sing, we will praise, these types of things. There are also some things that are not continuous there. The relationships are different. I find comfort in that. Jesus knows everything we need on earth, and he's going to provide everything we need for all eternity when we worship him as a gathered, redeemed people. Dear friends, you can bring your objections to Jesus about the resurrection. I hope you'll come back in the coming weeks because we'll be talking about the resurrection as we continue through Mark Here's a theological objection. Jesus tells them, you don't know the word. Here's how I would encourage every person in the room today. When we bring our challenges to Jesus, let's make sure we're dealing with him on his terms. The word. Let's make sure we know the word. We're dealing in the word. We're thinking about the word. We're 
entrenching ourselves in the word because that's where we're going to find the answers. Jesus is saying, hey, I'll go to your first five books, even though you should, by the way, accept the others. I'll go right there and I'll show you how you're wrong. You don't even know the power of God. You're wrong. You're wrong. Jesus affirms what he will in a few days prove. That is the bodily resurrection. Let me move on very quickly. Jesus teaches an all-encompassing love. You all know the story well. This is perhaps one of the, the major sections of Mark 12 that we often go to, how Jesus tells us to love. What is the most important command? It's a legitimate question if you realize that they, for example, the scribes, had identified, according to one scholar, 613 separate commandments, and 365 of which were negative, according to them, 248 were positive. So when you look at it, and there's this massive amount of commandments, hey, which one's the most important? And Jesus responds quickly, the most important is, then of course he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This confession was recited by devout Jews. They knew this. The person asking Jesus this question knew this. Yahweh is his covenant name given to his people. Yahweh is our God and our only God. We have no other. Yahweh is the one. He is one in essence and existence. He alone is God. There is no other. This is a powerful statement of uniqueness, of exclusivity. Our God is alone in power and authority. The context, by the way, back in Deuteronomy is also instructive. It would be great to land there for a little while and spend some time on, for example, how Deuteronomy 6 says that we are to obey His commandments all the days of our lives. We're to teach these to our children, chapter 6, verse 2 says. When we sit down, walk, lie down, and rise up, we would remember that He is our God who brought out of the land of Egypt, chapter 6, verse 12. And on and on and on. We have to love God for who He is and love God with all that we are. We have to love Him with our heart. We have to, in a sense, love God emotionally, the real you. We have to love God with our soul, our self-consciousness, if you will, as one scholar said. We have to give our love to God with our minds, our intellectual reasoning, our thoughts, We have to love him with our strength, that is our bodily powers, our will, our redeemed will. Here is what is so striking. He answers the man's question, and then he says something else. Why does Jesus drag us into loving our neighbor as well as loving God? Why do you need to love your neighbor? Why don't we get to just drive by our neighbors and not pay any attention to them? Why can't we just love God and keep it to ourselves? Why can't we just go on with our busy lives and make everything else secondary? Because it's hypocritical to love God and ignore people. The Bible says anyone who does not love God does not know God. Jesus does not compartmentalize love. You want to love God? Good. Show it in your love for others as well. Real love, God says, in a sense, is his power reaching down through you and extending to others. I find this statement quite perplexing when Jesus says to this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It was that statement that I wanted to see what most of the commentators said. I kind of knew what everybody would say about all the other parts, but it was this statement that really intrigued me. What's everybody going to say about Jesus' statement to this man, you're not far from the kingdom of God? And it's just interesting. You you pick up 10 commentaries on Mark and you kind of get this sense that according to Jesus, Jesus thought about people in three categories. Now, don't leave these real strict, but just hear me out on this. You are potentially far from the kingdom of God. That's one way of thinking of people. You're far from the kingdom of God. Number two, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And number three, there are people who are in the kingdom of God. Those who are far, those who aren't far, and those who are in. Well, what are those who are far away? 
Well, maybe that's you today, and you've rejected who Jesus is. You've rejected his claims of authority. You've rejected his belief in the resurrection and his proof of the resurrection, as we keep reading in Mark. You reject everything about him, as are these people. You don't get to make a designer Jesus who will like everything that you want him to like and never correct you and never judge you and never get in your business. Designer Jesus doesn't work. And there are those who are far from the kingdom. They have rejected him. But there are also, according to Jesus right here, those who are not far from the kingdom. It doesn't mean they're in, but they're not far. What does that mean? I think safely we can say this. There are people, perhaps you're one of them today, who are listening, who are open, who are genuinely wanting to find out who is Jesus. If that's you today, please keep coming back because here's why. God speaks to his people through his word and we preach his word here and we want you to hear God's word because he is calling you and only he can to respond to him. There is a difference between being in and those who are almost there. I'm not saying that they're the same. But perhaps you, and you don't even realize it, are drifting closer and closer and closer to being in the kingdom. Well, who are those who are in? All those who've called upon the name of Jesus, who've repented of their sins, and embraced him for who he is on his terms, and not who you want him to be. That's who's in the kingdom. And those who are in the kingdom love others. I think one way to apply this is to quote C.S. Lewis. In 1952, C.S. Lewis wrote a letter to a friend in which he said this, and I quote him, When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving toward not loving my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. You can't love other people well if you don't love God first. The order is important. Our devotion, our affections, our worship of God is not an end unto itself. It's an empowerment to love others. Let's be honest, friends. Some of us, all of us, are hard to love at times. Have you ever noticed that about you? You're cranky, you're snarky, you're opinionated, you're ambitious, you're selfish. All of us. Sometimes we're really hard to love. Loving God leads us to loving others. There's much more, so much more that could be said in that text. Let me say one last thing about this massive Mount Everest text. It's perhaps the most important. Jesus is going somewhere in this text. And it's verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. That's a wonderful statement to latch on to. Jesus affirming the Holy Spirit's inspiration of Scripture. David as well. Hang on to that. Your view of Scripture matters. Jesus has a high view of Scripture. We should do what he does. The Lord said, said, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. What is going on here? Very simply, let's say it quickly. The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God, will be a human descendant of David. That was expected. Everybody's got that. That was the long-for hope of God's people. But Jesus now extends the question. I know what you believe. I know what the expectation is. But he goes to Psalm 110, which ascribes this psalm to David, as I've already mentioned. And we have this, if you will, explanation or this question from Jesus. By the way, Psalm 110, the most quoted in the New Testament Verse 1, which Jesus cites here, is alluded 33 times in the New Testament. The verse reads, The Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies 
under your feet. And then comes the question Jesus asks. It's the same question he's asking you today. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Do you see the unavoidable problem that they weren't willing to deal with? And Jesus is right in their face by the authority he has from God. And he's asking them to make a decision. The Messiah is both David's son and his Lord at the same time. The Messiah is not simply David's son. He's David's sovereign. He is not just David's son. He's God's son who reigns as a king seated at his father's heavenly right hand. David's words don't work if the Messiah is just a human being. He must be more. That's what Jesus is wanting them to see. This is what they had failed to see. Jesus cites, by the way, this text again. When the high priest asked him, hey, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Chapter 14, verse 61. We'll get there. We find our Lord's response. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is David's son and David's savior. He is David's son and God's son. He is both human and divine. He is both man and God. Jesus is revealing a lot about himself in this massive, massive text. He has God-given authority. He is the cornerstone. He confirms God's sovereignty over all other institutions. He believes in the resurrection, Jesus does. And of course, we know he's going to prove it as this story goes on. He teaches all-encompassing love. We love God and love others. And Jesus is the Messiah. I wish we had time to go to the end of this chapter 12, where we are told to beware of the scribes who do what? Devour widows' houses, verse 40. And so then what does Jesus do? He watches a widow whose house is being devoured give all she has to the people who want to have authority over the place she's giving her money. You see that contrast? And what is Jesus seeing? He knows her. She's giving all she's got. And he expects no less of you. The Jesus of chapter 12 wants all of you. Not part. Not 90%. He wants total submission. Total worship. Total following him. He's leading us somewhere. Where is he leading us? He's leading us to our redemption. Hang on and mark. We're going to see him give his life a ransom for many. Thanks be to God for this wonderful gift that we have in Christ. Let's pray together.